Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Let me read Zechariah chapter 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of his people. And those days should also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, and you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for, for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of the people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem. To the house of Judah, fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. People suffering illness want to recover, to feel good again. People who are out of work due to economic downturn, some people want to return to their jobs to provide for their families, to cover their expenses, to enjoy the fruit of their labors. Families or even churches going through conflict and dissension, hunger for peace and reconciliation. 20 years ago when I was in seminary, my wife and I were living on campus around other families uh, who were just barely scraping by, all focused and preparing to enter the gospel ministry after our seminary training. And I recall how without exception, all of these families were dealing with at least one of three problems. Money problems, health problems, relational problems. And in hindsight, it's it's very clear to me that all of us were undergoing a kind of testing. As the the Lord was preparing us to be shepherds of God's flock, compassionate shepherds who can identify with people afflicted in this cursed world. Zechariah, the prophet, speaks to a people longing for hope and restoration. And the people want to believe, wanted to believe what he had to say, but had reservations. Perhaps wondering if these things were too good to be true. Like them, at times we can be cynical and a kind of self-preservation to, you know, wanting to believe that God is good and and that he will bless us. But sometimes we fear to hope too much. We feel unworthy. We fear that God may be out to get us, might reject us or condemn us. The prophet Zechariah reminds us the promise of the gospel. That if God is for us, who can be against us? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This vision in chapter 8 reminds us that God desires his people to be free and prosper. That God's blessings come with obligations. And that through his people, God desires all peoples from every nation to enjoy the prosperity of his salvation by trusting in him through faith in Jesus Christ. Our passage opens with the proclamation that the Lord of hosts is jealous, jealous for his holy city, Zion, his dwelling place. And here we see three promises in verses 1 through 8 that God promises to return to the city. He promises peace and prosperity, and he promises to populate the city again. First, God declares that he has returned to dwell in their midst, calling Jerusalem the faithful city. God had been with his people Israel as they fled Egypt, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, the Lord's holy presence filled the Holy of Holies. 
so that the high priest could only enter in once a year. But here God promises to restore and rebuild the city and its temple after exile, where God would be would establish his dwelling to provide them peace and security. The second promise includes a picturesque vision of old men and women sitting once again in the streets, enjoying the sights and sounds of children playing freely. Jerusalem at this time was not friendly to the young or to the aged. The city was a wreck. It was unsafe like some of our American cities today, afflicted with unrest and violent shootings and riots with businesses and families wanting to leave. We need to pray. Pray for the peace and prosperity of our nation's cities and pray for those who cannot leave. But Jerusalem would take many years to rebuild. Men like Nehemiah would come along to rebuild its walls to help establish peace and prosperity in the years that followed. And this is marvelous in my sight, says the Lord in verse 6. The Lord wants his holy city to be rebuilt, to gather back his people who have fled in the chaos, to return from the east and the west. Jerusalem had declined, but its most precious resource, its people, would yet return to restore its spiritual, its cultural, its economic vitality. This vision is fulfilled in part as it was rebuilt after the city was rebuilt after exile and raised from the ashes, establishing a new temple and new walls. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem was a marvelous city. Recall how the disciples gawked at the size of the walls and the buildings, only to hear the Lord say that within a generation it would all be toppled again. Fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans would come and sack the holy city to destruction. Some believe that Zechariah's prophecy and promise is in the future in a kind of Jewish restoration. Others believe that it will be fulfilled when Christ returns and establishes a thousand-year reign on earth. I hold the view that his promise and this prophecy is fulfilled through the New Testament church. As the gospel spreads and transforms families and communities, cities, and even entire nations, the church is the Israel of God, says Paul in Galatians 6. Also in Romans 11, we Christians are grafted into the olive tree of Israel. The church is God's temple, the place of his dwelling. And it's our biblical preaching and our witness that spreads spiritual prosperity as it draws people from the east and the west into the household of faith. Of course, this promise's ultimate fulfillment comes when Christ returns. Even back in Zechariah chapter 2, he offers a vision of a Jerusalem without walls, where God's presence will be its glory, surrounded by walls of fire into which many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall my be, be my people. The church is the new spiritual Jerusalem. So here we see the, the continuation of God's redemptive story. As the people of faith in Zechariah's day are, anticipate the fulfillment of Christ's coming centuries later. Unto our day where we see the ingathering of 
the nations throughout the world and, and the future hope we have of a heavenly Jerusalem coming down to a restored earth where we will dwell with God in peace and righteousness forever. Sound too good to be true? You know, we may doubt these things. We go through tough times and we question whether God truly is for us. Some of us may, we accept that God is powerful, but does he really care? Or maybe we believe that God is compassionate, but can he really do anything to rescue me in my plight? Recently, I was talking with a woman, not a Westminster member, who informed me that her husband died five years ago and has an adult son who has attempted suicide twice just in the past year. And this woman has a deep and abiding faith in Christ. She knows that her husband is with the Lord, but she's hurting for her son who struggles to believe in God and questions whether his life is worth living. We talked about Jesus and the widow at Nain. You recall the account from Luke 7, where Jesus leads his disciples to this small town, and they're met there by a funeral procession led by a woman whose widowhood is now struck with a greater tragedy, and she's about to bury her only son. Now, most of us on that occasion would just stand back and be quiet and respectful and somber as a funeral procession passed by, but not Jesus. Luke says that he sets his gaze on this unnamed hurting woman. And Luke says that he saw her. He was filled with compassion for her, and he said, do not weep. Do not weep? I mean, who says that at a funeral? But then Jesus does something even more shocking. He walks up and puts his hand on the buyer of the dead man. The pallbearers halt. They don't know what to do. Jewish rabbis are not supposed to go near, let alone touch a dead body, thus making them unclean. And just when everyone thinks that Jesus has to go quarantine himself, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. The young man gets up. He speaks and goes to his mother. Jesus does not become unclean when he touches us. Jesus enters our filth and makes us clean. He enters our chaos and brings order. He enters into our despair, giving us hope. He enters into our poverty and gives us prosperity. Now, we have to be careful when we speak of the gospel in terms of prosperity. The prosperity gospel is a dangerous perversion of the biblical gospel. The health and wealth gospel says that that God will make you rich and he will heal all your ailments if you have enough faith. Ask big, name it and claim it. This faith might be expressed by giving your rent money to a TV preacher who has no shame in taking the widow's might to build his empire and drive nice cars. The prosperity gospel fails to account for real suffering in a fallen world. It takes God's promises and demands that they be fulfilled in this life on our terms while turning a blind eye to real limits and hardships that God's people will face. Like Elijah and Elisha, Jesus raises 
this young man. But newsflash, he will die again. Thankfully, after his mother goes to be with the Lord. God does desire our prosperity, which sometimes manifests in material gain from our labor, but even when that is lacking due to meager opportunities or bodily limits, we enjoy spiritual prosperity. The inheritance that belongs to those who have been reconciled to God, whose sins have been forgiven, who have the peace that passes all understanding, who can live with hope despite our afflictions, who wait with patience for times of refreshing to come in, partially in this life, completely in the life that is to come. Secondly, God's blessings are free and gracious. We cannot earn them. But they do come with obligations. It's the principle that great freedom comes with great responsibility. Verses 9 to 17 outline a number of duties and expectations that God has for his people. First, we are to be strong. Verse 9 says, let your hands be strong. It was time to build and not to be given to slack hands. The people's confidence to rebuild the temple and then later on the wall was bolstered by God's promise to be present with them, to be their shield and defender. This is a not infrequent command in Scripture. Remember the Lord speaking to Joshua after Moses had died with the Israelite people on the east side of the Jordan. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Near the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Though you and I are weak in ourselves, we are strong in the Lord. We face giants in the land that threaten to devour us. And yet, like David's mighty men, we must confront them and not run away. God calls us to stand our ground and not yield territory to the enemy who would spread lies, who would pervert the true gospel and deceive many. Secondly, we are not to give way to fear. We see this at the end of verse 13 and 15. Do not be afraid. The most common, most frequent command in Scripture. My wife and I have talked about, we we could write a 365 daily, year-long devotional on each of the passages that exhort us not to give way to fear. Yes, there is much that may tempt us to fear. You or someone you love may catch COVID-19. But let us be clear about the real medical risk and have perspective. This is not the first nor the last plague afflicted that afflicts the church. We have seen worse before, and we very well may see worse to come. We may fear social disorder, a bad election outcome a month or so from now, but we have to remember that God is on his throne. We may fear economic fallout, but we have to remember that God is our provider. 
we may be overwhelmed and fearful of secular forces. Seducing the minds of our young people with radical, unbiblical ideas regarding identity and personhood and justice and so forth. We must face our fears and not give in to them. Scripture affirms that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. John, the apostle, writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. God's free and prosperous people demonstrate their faith when ruled by love and not fear. When we move towards people and not away from them. When rather than retreat from the culture, we press forward boldly with compassion to show the world the power of our mighty God. Thirdly, speak the truth in love. Verses 16 and 17 offer a list of things that we should do, a kind of Old Testament summary of gospel living. Last week, Dr. Walker spoke from chapter 7 that true religion is characterized by justice and mercy and compassion. But here we read that we must speak the truth to each other, render judgments that make for peace, to not devise evil in our hearts, and to love no false thing. Scripture says to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good. We are to stand for truth, for justice, to advocate for the oppressed, to ensure equal protections for all people under the rule of law. In a world of fake news, it can be hard to discern what is accurate, but we can be rest assured with what is truth, as revealed from God's word. We may not be experts on medical truth or scientific truth or even political truth, but we stick to what we know to be true, the gospel, the only hope for sinners in this life and the life to come. And in the gospel, may we stand out before a culture in crisis where many people are jumping ship into the icy waters of nihilism. We have much work to do to pull people into the lifeboat of faith as we await our final rescue from our Lord and Savior. And so thirdly, God desires that all peoples receive his prosperity. You know, the occasion of Zechariah chapter 7 and 8 is a delegation of men coming from this town of Bethel to question the prophet about fasting. And here, verses 18 and 19, God promises to turn fasting into feasting. You recall Jesus and his disciples being criticized by the Pharisees because they weren't fasting. To which Jesus replied, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is still with them? Indeed, fasting would come when the bridegroom was taken, beaten, crucified, and buried. But mourning and weeping would give way to hope and joy with Christ's victory over sin and death, demonstrated by his resurrection. The gospel includes fasting and feasting. The gospel is both bad news and good news. It's the the bad news of sin and judgment that must lead to humility, repentance, and fasting. But it's also good news. The good news of forgiveness and eternal life that leads to rejoicing and feasting. This good news is a feast. It is freedom and prosperity, something that we should desire all peoples to receive and to enjoy. 
And so verses 20 through 23 expresses God's desire that the people from many cities and many nations would seek the favor of the Lord. God's blessings. And his prosperity was not to be hoarded by the Jews. By the Jews. The Old Testament vision through Abraham. It was through Abraham that all nations on earth were to be blessed. And it was through the Jewish people that God's word, that God's salvation was spread to the Gentiles as we see in the lives of David, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, and Daniel, many who encountered Gentiles who testified to them God's power and mercy and broke down barriers and strongholds of an idolatrous people that they might be set free to know, love, and serve the true and living God. This vision is fulfilled in Christ's church. As we see today in the modern missions movement, in recent centuries, unreached people groups have been reached in mass, reducing the number of unreached people groups over the last few centuries from 16,000 unique groups now today, just over 6,000 unreached people groups. 97% of whom live in what's called the 1040 window, stretching across North Africa, the Middle East, Central in South Asia, there is still a lot of work to be done until Christ returns. In his book, Eternity and Their Hearts, Don Richardson writes about numerous ethnic groups in the 1800s and 1900s who were seemingly waiting to be restored to the true God as missionaries from the West came to tell them about the true God. These people waiting to receive a book, to receive missing information. One such people group is the Karen people, a minority people group in Burma. Their forefathers had writings and stories and hymns of a supreme God, Yahweh. They had a prophecy going back centuries of a, of a white brother coming to give them a lost book. The Karen people's ancient hymns tell of a eternal God who does not die, who created the world, who created the first man, who appointed a trial, a a fruit of trial, whom Satan deceived, bringing chaos, sin, and death. And then Adoranam Judson, in 1817, went to Burma to translate the gospel, the the scriptures, into the Burmese language, and though he had a difficult time reaching the, the majority Burmese people who were primarily Buddhist, In time, he had a Karen convert, a man who went on to become an incredible evangelist to the Karen people and other minority groups across the nation of Burma. We have Karen people in our church today. We have Karen people and other minority groups from Burma who you'll see in this service in a few weeks meeting to worship to hear the the sermon translated in their own language, praise the Lord. In our final verse, we read that ten men from every nation, from every tongue, will take the robe of a Jew and, and say, we will go with you, for we have seen that God is with you. Who is this Jewish man? He is a carpenter. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the eternal Son of God. A father had to watch his 10-year-old son one day, and he had a lot of work to do, so to occupy his son, 
He found a map of the world in a magazine. He tore it out, ripped it up into pieces, and gave it to his son as a kind of puzzle. and says, you put this together in the shape of the world. But then to his great surprise, only 15, 20 minutes later, his son comes back with the puzzle put together. And knowing that his son didn't really know how the world looked and how it should be put together, he asked him, son, how did he do this? And the son said, well, it was simple. On the back of the picture of the world was the picture of a man's face. And knowing what a man's face looked like, he pieced together the man's face just right and then turned it over, and the whole world was put in place. If you get the man right, you set the world aright. The man, Christ Jesus, the only Savior of the world, will restore all things according to the ultimate will of God. God's freedom and prosperity is to be shared, not hoarded. Paul says that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. The Son of God did not hoard his prosperity. He freely gave it away. To share with the adopted sons and daughters of God his inheritance. We don't earn this prosperity but it is our obligation to steward it, to live righteously, to teach others the way of God, to promote justice and peace, that the name and fame of God might spread on the earth, that many peoples from east and west, from all nations, might come home to dwell with us in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we're grateful for this vision for the hope of the gospel that we read in Zechariah's prophecy, that you are for us, not against us. You desire our prosperity, that you desire all nations, all peoples to enjoy the blessing and the promise that you first gave to Abraham. Help us to be a prosperous people who live for your glory and for the ingathering of the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.